Well, hey, good morning. How you guys doing? Um, I've got ushers ready to come forward, but I'm going to put you guys on pause for a minute. Is that okay? Because uh, before we go anywhere in this service, if I could, I would just um, ask uh, the men and women in this room who have served in any branch of the military, would you please stand? Don't be shy. Please stand. Go ahead and remain standing. No, 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 no. Um, I, I hope you understand that um, we understand that what we're able to do here this morning, the freedoms that we have in this country, um, came at a price, and uh, our ability to gather today and worship um, freely is because men came and paid a price and uh, stood on that wall and provided us our protection. And so please understand we're uh, deeply grateful for uh, the service of the men and women who are standing. Thank you, guys. I am going to ask the ushers to come down, bring Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 32. If you would, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers will get a Bible into your hand. Um, I have never been a soldier. Um, I am not from a family of soldiers. My dad um, was in the Navy during World War II, but he uh, had lost his father at an early age, um, was never stationed overseas. In 2008, I had the incredible opportunity um, to travel to Baghdad, um, Iraq, and spend a little bit of time in a war zone where our military was active, and to be um, incredibly um, impressed uh, in an indelible way at uh, the professionalism of our armed forces um, in the arena of war. Now, why was I there? Um, I was a real estate developer. And um, I was invited by the Department of Defense to travel to um, Baghdad to explore the possibility of building a hotel inside the green zone across the street from the U.S. Embassy that was being completed in downtown Baghdad. Now, a little bit about the embassy that we built in downtown Baghdad. It is the largest embassy anywhere in the world. It covers 102 acres in downtown Baghdad. That's an aerial picture that I mentioned at the nine o'clock as I saw it flash on the screen. I probably shouldn't be Google searching aerial pictures of US embassies in Iraq. I hope I didn't land on a Homeland Security list to uh, show that to you. But that is an overhead of our embassy in downtown Baghdad. It encompasses over 100 acres. It is right along the Tigris um, River. Interestingly, uh, the site that we chose to put our embassy on was the previous home of the palace of Uday Hassan, Saddam, or Saddam Hussein's son Uday, and he is one of the most cruel, wicked rulers to ever live on this planet. A little bit of a bad visual for an occupying army to come in and choose that place to set up operations, but that is where our embassy is. Um, our embassy is no small structure. They estimate that it cost over $1 billion to build 
and uh, it contains two office buildings, six residential buildings. It is, in essence, it is a city um, in and of itself. It has a shopping mall, it has an Olympic-sized swimming pool, it has gyms, tennis courts. At its height, in 2011 and 2012, the embassy employed an estimated 16,000 people. And the issue, they had enough uh, living quarters for the people that lived there, but they didn't have anywhere for people who had to visit our embassy to stay. So the U.S. government was contacting us. I was a hotel developer to see the potential of us developing a privately owned hotel across the street from the U.S. Embassy. Now, this raises some questions. Who's going to insure this building? Like, like that's, that's a problem. Who's going to finance the construction? Can we find a lender who will lend money that allows us to build a hotel in Baghdad? Constructability was an issue. Where are we going to find the workers? How are we going to get the workers in and out of the green zone every day? Where are they going to stay so that they're safe during the construction process, let alone the logistics of getting the materials to build the hotel in and out of the green zone? and into downtown Baghdad. A, a myriad of problems, but the biggest problem that we had was land ownership. The little parcel of land that they wanted us to build on, we couldn't get clear title. There were as many as 21 different people that could lay claim to ownership of that land. The laws in Iraq didn't exist to protect the investor who came in. We worked for eight months with the Iraqi government and Plant and Moran CPAs writing the laws that would enable U.S companies to come in and acquire land. At the end of the day, um, we didn't do the investment. Here's why. Building a hotel in the middle of a war zone is a terrible idea. <laughs> Took us eight months, but we figured it out. And the reason that I tell you that story is when we turn to Jeremiah 32, the prophet Jeremiah in this chapter, it's a story that probably most of you are not familiar with, but he is given the opportunity to make one of the worst real estate investments of all time. And he takes it. And so as we look at this passage and we look, why would Jeremiah do what he's going to do? Please hear me. We're not just studying a real estate transaction from years ago, but this real estate transaction, quite honestly, it has a lot to do with our lives today. There's a lot of relevance to what we see in Jeremiah 32 to our lives today. So let me just get you caught up to speed as you're in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah was a prophet that lived 600 years before the time of Christ. Before I forget, because somebody will come up to me after the service, because I always do this, I almost forgot the big idea. For you note takers, you want that? Here's the big idea this morning. Our big idea is God's promise to redeem will stand. God's promise to redeem will stand. So Jeremiah lived 600 years before Christ. He is called the weeping prophet because he was given the word of the Lord. That's what prophets did. His job was to give the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah, well, it was pretty difficult for the nation of Judah to hear give you an example. In Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah prophesies or says of the people, were they ashamed when they committed sin or abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Jeremiah was the last in a string of prophets that had prophesied to Judah, you have to repent, you have to turn from your sin. But by the time Jeremiah got there, they were so ingrained in their wickedness that it had gotten to the point where they were sacrificing their own children 
to Moloch and other Canaanite gods. And Jeremiah is given the responsibility by God to prophesy that Judah is about to fall. The Babylonians are going to take over Jerusalem. They're going to wipe out the city. In Jeremiah 30, at the beginning of that in chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, write in a book all the things that I've spoken to you. And in Jeremiah 30 through 33, those four chapters, they're called because of that command, write this in a book, the book of hope or the book of consolation. And throughout those chapters, Jeremiah is going to tell the nation of Israel, you are going to fall into captivity. But nine times in those chapters, he also says that God will restore you to your land. And though he will punish your sin, after a season, he will come back and redeem you. So it is that final warning of what is about to come, but it also has the hope that God will restore the nation. He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built. And as we jump into chapter 32, look at verse 1. It said, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, history gives us the dates that both of those kings reigned. And as you look at the crosshairs of those two years of the king's reign, it gives us a very specific date of when the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It came to him somewhere between April 23rd and October 17th, 587 B.C. Now, this is the third time that Babylon has come against the city of Jerusalem. They surrounded the city in 605 B.C. They had it surrounded, and Nebuchadnezzar retreated back to Babylon because his father was killed, and many believe that's when Daniel was taken into captivity in Babylon. They returned in 598 B.C. because the Judean king in place at that point was a problem. His name was Jehoiachin, and they took Jehoiachin into captivity, and in 598 B.C., they put Zedekiah in his place. He was a puppet king for Nebuchadnezzar in Judah. But we read that after a certain time that he was reigning, in 2 Kings 24, it says, Zedekiah reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it says, and he rebelled against the king of Babylon. So he is back for the third time surrounding and besieging the city of Jerusalem, and I would say that Nebuchadnezzar is out of patience with the people of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. God has warned them, not just for a year and not just for a month, but for decades and centuries, you need to repent. He's exhausted by Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar is also exhausted by Judah, and history will tell us that at the end of this besieging of Jerusalem, the city will fall and Nebuchadnezzar will burn it to the ground. So that's where we're at in the story. It says in verse 2, At the time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard who was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, I am giving this city into the hands of the king of Babylon? So Jeremiah is saying, God's going to give this city to the Babylonians. Actually, God's words were much more direct. God says in Jeremiah 21, verse 5, God's saying, I myself will fight against you, Judah, with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. 
So because the people haven't repented from their sin, God actually turns and says, I'm going to fight against you. Anybody ever feel like you're swimming upstream up here? Like it's just like, why is everything so hard? And I feel like the hand of the Lord is against me. And everything I set my efforts to, it doesn't seem to go well. Hey, here's a clue. Maybe it is. Is it possible sometimes in our rebellion that God actually turns his disfavor towards us rather than his favor? Absolutely, if we're allowing unrepentant sin to continue. That's the case with the nation of Judah. It says in verse 4, Zedekiah, king of Judah, again, Jeremiah is prophesying. He says, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and shall speak to him face to face and see him eye to eye. Now, that's what he said. The reality is he will see Nebuchadnezzar eye to eye. The city will fall, and once it is fallen and after he sees him eye to eye, Jeremiah goes on and explains later in his book that Nebuchadnezzar plucks out the eyes of King Zedekiah. Verse 5, And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not exceed. So you've got a prophet who's in jail because he's speaking against the political leaders of his day. You've got to believe this guy was annoying to the king. Hey, you're surrounded by the strongest army in the world, and you're going to fail. Doesn't matter how, far, how bad you're going to fight, you're going to lose. You can see how that would be annoying to the king, right? So the king places him in jail. And if you'll allow me, I've got a major stream that I'm trying to drive in this message, but I'm going to step out of the stream and just do a side rant for a minute. Can I do that? When is it okay for us as followers of Jesus Christ to speak out against our political leaders? When is that okay? See, that's what Jeremiah's doing. He's speaking out against the religious leaders of the day. Was it okay for Jeremiah to do that? Is that something that we can look at his example and say, we need to speak out against our religious leaders? Pretty good question, right? Glad for asked. I'm so glad you guys asked. You're on your game. Here's the answer. You are free to speak against the religious leaders of our country when you have a word from the Lord. When you have a word from the Lord, you go ahead and speak against the religious leaders. Let's just make that our threshold, because that's what Jeremiah says. He says, thus says the Lord, and then he speaks out against the political leaders. You got that word from the Lord? Now, that's a good question. Do we have a word from the Lord to speak against our religious leaders? Some of you are nodding like this. Some of you are not like this. So it seems to be a question that you're asking yourselves again. Fantastic question this morning. Do we have a word from the Lord? Yes, we do. It's clear in the word of the Lord. Let me show it to you. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. If you're struggling to follow what God is saying, let me summarize. When you speak against the authorities that I have put in place and established, you are speaking against me. He says in 1 Peter 2, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be as emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, For this is 
the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Pretty clear weird word from the Lord. Here's the problem. In our country, our respect for our political leaders is deplorable. It's shameful. We mock and ridicule our political leaders. And please don't hear this as a quit saying bad things about Trump. This is a Republican and a Democratic problem. It's bipartisan. You can turn on the news, you can turn on the late night shows every week, and at 11.30, what is the opening monologue on every major network? It's ridicule of our political leaders. Saturday Night Live, over the line. And God's not laughing because these are the authorities that he has put in place to establish what he is establishing, whether we understand it or not. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should not take the bait. This raises a third question. What do we do when we find ourselves under authorities, be it political, be it at work, be it parents and kids? What do we do when we find ourselves under a biblical authority, a God-established authority, when that authority is not acting in a way that is God-honoring. What do we do then? Well, the Bible deals with that directly. 1 Peter 2, the context is slaves and masters, and it's addressing slaves who are under the authority of unfair masters. It says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. Again, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, verse 22. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When you speak against your political leaders, when you speak against your boss, when you take that bait, kids, when you speak against the authority, when you're under your parents' roof, you are speaking against an authority that God has put in place. And I can't say this any clearer. It's not right. It's sin. We live in a wonderful country. We have incredible freedoms. If you don't like your politicians, vote. I hope you did that this last week. If you don't like your... Um, boss, you have the right to quit. We're not slaves. But what we don't have the right to do is join in with a culture that really struggles with any authority. Would you agree? As followers of Jesus Christ, what we are called to do, if I could sum it up in one word, it's that we're to live in submission to Jesus Christ. Our best way to practice submission to our God is to be in submission to the authorities that he's put in place. Okay, is that enough time on that side rant? You guys good? Was I clear? Did you guys get my point? Okay, I'm going to get off of that because I got some more rants and I, I don't want to take all my time on that one. Here's the second thing. Here's the first point in our messages. Um, living for Christ will cost us something. Can we just get rid of the notion that following God will lead to peace in this lifetime? The idea that God is for our comfort, for our um, uh, peace, for our uh, life without relational conflict. Like, let's quit believing that that is what God has called us to do. We seek comfort. We seek pleasure. We seek peace. That's not always God's intent for us. Very seldom throughout 
any of the scripture, Old Testament or New Testament, can you find an example of someone who chose to be obedient to what God called them to do that didn't pay a price or suffer a consequence for that obedience? Jeremiah is in prison because he has faithfully and obediently declared the word of the Lord. And that is a model that is repeated over and over in scripture. You go all the way back to Abraham. By following the Lord, he had to leave his home. You can see this in the life of David. You can see it in the life of Joseph. You can see it in the life of Daniel. And you can see it in the life of Moses. It says in Hebrews 11, speaking of Moses, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for his reward. So Moses, because of where he was raised, had access to everything the world could offer, but he was willing to lay the comfort and the ease of life to the side to suffer with the people of God because he was looking for a reward. It said he made that decision when he was grown up. And quite honestly, sometimes to me, sometimes to you, I believe God's word to us is grow up. Sometimes in the counseling rooms and when we meet with people, the crisis is stop the pain. I'm in a situation that's uncomfortable. I'm suffering. I don't understand it. Make the pain stop. And sometimes we have to respond and say, it's not about stopping the pain. It's what is God trying to teach you in the midst of the struggle and in the midst of the pain. I find it interesting that as we go into this story, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah while he's in prison. And my fear would be that because we believe that we shouldn't suffer and we avoid it at all costs, sometimes we miss the very opportunity that God is looking to use us, but he's looking to speak to us in the storm, not in the ease and the comfort. John 16, says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Living for Jesus will cost us something. Here's the second thing. God wants more than our words. So we get into the story, verse 6. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Again, Jeremiah's in prison. It says, behold, Hanam, I struggle with Old Testament names. Can we just confess that? If you've been here a long time, you know that. So he's going to be called Mel through the rest of the story. We're just going to make this easier, okay? So that I'm not stumbling over this the rest of the time. Okay, so behold, uh, Mel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, by my field that is in Anathoth. Another wonderful word to repeat over and over, Anathoth. So Mel asked his uncle, he's going to come, the word of the Lord says that he's going to come to you and ask you to buy a piece of land that is in Anathoth. Rather than say that, we're going to pronounce that for the rest of the message, Nunica. Okay? <laughs> it's going to be Nunica. Uh, Anathoth is about two and a half miles outside of Jerusalem. It's kind of a nothing city. And it says, the word of the Lord, some of you picked up on that. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, behold, Mel will come and say, buy my field that is at Nunica, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Mel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the garden, accordance to the word of the Lord, and said to me, buy my field that is at Nunica, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Okay, so 
a little bit of background, I won't go into it, but Mel and the rest of his family, Nunaka is Jeremiah's hometown, and his relatives from his hometown tried to kill him in chapter 6. Now they're trying to get them to purchase a piece of land in his hometown. And I'm sure they're selling it up. Hey, this is a great opportunity for you, Jeremiah. I know you're in jail now, but you can have this piece of land for a steal. And Nunica is about to become a boom town. This piece of land, it's right across the street from Turks. It's in the center of everything in Nunica. This is an incredible opportunity for you. Now, now, whether Mel told him or not, I don't know, but here's the reality. The piece of land that Jeremiah is being offered is already under Babylonian control. They've already overthrown Nunica. They've surrounded Spring Lake, but they've already got Nunica. So what he is being offered is the opportunity to buy a piece of land that is completely under enemy control. This is a horrible real estate deal. Why would you buy a piece of land in enemy territory? And it goes on and it says in the text, verse 9, then I bought the field at Nunica from Mel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. Modern day equivalent, that was about 200, 250 bucks. Great price, horrible land. What would you pay for a piece of worthless land? Would you pay 200 bucks? Would you pay 250? See, anything's too much if the piece of land is worthless. Why does Jeremiah buy the land? This is the worst deal ever unless the word of the Lord is true. Unless God keeps his promises. Because Jeremiah has just finished nine times declaring that though you're going to go into back captivity, there's going to be a day when God restores you to this land and you will dwell here again. See, if God's word is true, what was the worst investment ever becomes the bargain of a lifetime because God has made a promise that his people will return and restore this land. By the way, it happens. Both Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 both talk about the descendants of Anathoth returning to this city after the Babylonian captivity was over. The important thing to understand is God wants more than our words. In essence, Jeremiah has been prophesying, the land's going to fall, the land's going to fall, we're going to go back into captivity, but the Lord will restore over and over and over again. And what God is doing in this example is he's saying, put your money where your mouth is. Don't just declare the word of the Lord, do something according to the word of the Lord. Now, at Harvest, we have a faith definition, and that faith definition is faith is believing the Word of God and acting on it, no matter how I feel, because God promises a good result. Every one of those phrases is important in the definition of faith. Believing the Word of God, we receive the Word of God, we understand the Word of God, and acting upon it. Without the acting, it's not faith. It's just head knowledge. And sometimes God calls us to do things according to his word. And knowing his word and understanding his word is not enough. He's calling us to action. Jeremiah is told, put your money where your mouth is. If you're going to prophesy that this is true, make an investment. Believing that it is true. 
I believe that's a good word for us today. Verses 10 through 13, he goes through a ton of minute detail on this transaction. They get witnesses, they get two copies, they seal one document, they don't seal the other, they get the thing recorded. All of this for what he says in verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. See, the Babylonian captivity, history tells us, lasted for 70 years. Jeremiah is making an investment that for long seasons isn't going to make a lot of sense. But he knows that there's a day where God will keep his promises, so he's being very careful about the document that gives him the right to redeem this land. And he's saying, I'm going to put this in a jar and we're going to store it and we're going to record it and it's going to be done right because I'm counting that God will keep his promises because he has said, verse 15, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Verse 16, and after I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, here's four things I want you to look for in this prayer as we go through it. Four reasons I can trust God when things don't make sense. Four reasons I can trust God when things don't make sense. It's interesting, when we don't understand the circumstances in our lives, when we can't make logical sense, when we can't connect the dots, when we don't clearly see cause and effect, our mind will begin to race trying to connect dots, trying to make sense, and most often, if left to ourselves, our mind goes to the worst possible options. Wouldn't you agree? We begin to forget the promises of the Lord and left to ourselves, we begin to fixate on the worst possible option. Let me give you some examples of this. When I was a kid growing up, maybe uh, in uh, elementary school, um, I would ride the bus back and forth to school and when I would get home from school, most times my mom would be there, but sometimes she wouldn't be and the house would be empty. Now, today you would just call your mom on your cell phone, but back then we didn't have cell phones. We had these lime green phones that hung on our wall in our kitchen that you dialed like this, and it was connected to a cord. I know this is hard to believe, but this is how it worked. And my mom didn't carry a phone, and maybe she got delayed or was at the store or was running errands and get home as soon as she could, and she wasn't able to alert me that she wouldn't be home. So I would walk into a house, and my mom wasn't there, and I expected her to be there. And so immediately, having grown up Baptist in a Baptist home, I could only conclude one thing. The rapture had happened. <laughs> Mom's gone. The Lord returned. I missed it. My whole family's gone. What am I going to do now? Because that's how our mind works. I'll give you another example. When I was in high school, we had a dog, uh, an English Springer Spaniel. It was my childhood pet. The dog's name was Andy. And when we were off at school, my mom would take a, a sock that we had tied a knot in, she'd throw it down to one end of the house, play fetch with the dog, and sometimes what she would do is she would throw the sock to the other side of the house, and then she would go hide somewhere, see if the dog could find her. If you're not a dog lover, you don't get this, okay? But this is what went on. So on this certain day, my mom took the sock, threw it down to the other end of the house, and she stepped into our um, coat closet and just kind of stood there with the door cracked open to see if the dog would find her. Well, the dog immediately found her, pushed against the door, and locked her in. <laughs> and in the coat closet, there's no light, and there's no knob on the inside. She's stuck. 
and it's a lean-in closet. She has nowhere to sit. It's completely dark. And in that situation, like us, her mind begins to, wor- to race to the worst possible options. How long have I been in here? How long will I be in here? Who's going to find me? And she begins to pray earnestly that one of her daughters gets home before one of her two sons do (laughs) because she convinces herself that if Keith or or I get home before one of my sisters, we won't let her out. (laughs) See, again, imagining the worst possible option, that is not true. Keith and I would have let her out eventually. (laughs) And I give some silly examples, but in the silliness, don't miss. It is true that left to ourselves, we will spiral down patterns of thinking that are often worst case rather than realistic. Would you agree? In Jeremiah's prayer, you're going to see what he does to combat that natural tendency when he doesn't understand what God is asking him to do. Look at verse 17. He says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The first point, he focuses on the fact that God is in control. God is in control. Nothing is too hard for you. God is not limited to the natural law. God is not dictated by the laws of nature. He is God over them. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and though he established the natural law, he can step into the frame of the natural law and expand it or contract it as he pleases and he sees fit. He is not bound by natural law, and he has the ability to do something that we would call miracles if, when, how he desires. That's our God. And some of you are like, I can only believe what I can be proven, and I'm, I'm very scientific in my approach, and if it can't be explained naturally, then it can't happen. Let me tell you something. God is outside the realm of natural laws. He's the one that set them in order, and he can do as he pleases. In a few weeks, we're going to be uh, celebrating Christmas and the season of Advent. We're excited for it as a church, but the whole purpose of celebrating Advent is to celebrate the miraculous. Christ came to earth, inhabited human flesh, and it says that he was born of a virgin. It tells us in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. That is in response to two women sitting talking. Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist in her old age, beyond when she's supposed to have kids, talking with Mary who has child, even though she's never had sex. If you don't believe that God can do the impossible, then you don't have a clear understanding of who our God is. God is not bound and his... Listen, I understand. Anybody in the room need a miracle? Anybody walking in here kind of busted up? Can't figure out why you're in the position that you find yourself in, why you're struggling, why life has turned this way. Anybody, like, need a miracle? Jeremiah got it. Jeremiah is in jail in a city that is surrounded. He is being held captive by people that are about to become captives. There is a shortage of food. There is pestilence in Jerusalem. Do you think the guys in jail are getting first dibs on the food? And his only chance at release 
is that the king would pardon him, but it's the very king that put him in jail because he kept speaking the word of the Lord against the king. Like, I don't know how busted up you are this morning, but Jeremiah was in a difficult place. And when he found himself there and he didn't understand why he was buying this worthless piece of land, he called out and declared what he knew to be true, that God was in control and nothing is impossible with God. And there is something beautiful about the spirit of a man who doesn't look at his circumstances, but looks at the God who is over his circumstances. Here's the second thing, verse 18. His character is good. Verse 18, you show steadfast love to the thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, in these next three points, as Jeremiah gives his prayer, he says what's true of God, but he doesn't just focus on the positive, he focuses on the negative. And what he's doing is he's declaring, God, your character is good when you choose to bless your people, and your character is good when you choose to punish your people. Either way, I will declare and have confidence that your character is good. And please hear me today. There isn't a person in this room who will not bring glory to God by your very existence. Philippians says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And for some of you, that will be in humility and gratitude for his grace and mercy. And some of you will only do it forcibly because you continue to shake your fist in rebellion towards God. Either way, you will bring glory to God. Some of us will be trophies of God's grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his steadfast love. And others of us will be trophies of the goodness of God and his justice and his holiness. But either way, Jeremiah declares that his character is good. Verse 19 God is engaged. It's his great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. That statement is comforting and frightening at the same time. I look at it and I say, God is engaged. He sees. He's watching. That gives me hope that righteousness will win that when I'm oppressed for righteousness' sake, that I'll be validated, but it also frightens me because my sin will be exposed. Jeremiah sees both sides of that. It's interesting, as I preach, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is from Chronicles. It's 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, giving strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. It's a reminder to me that God sees, and when our heart is given to him, God is looking. He is searching for people who are willing to do that. I love that promise, don't you? You want to see the next phrase? Put that up on the screen. I usually don't quote this one. You have done foolishly in this, and from now on you will have wars. That promise was given to King Asa, who it says did wicked in the sight of the Lord. God is engaged, and he sees and Jeremiah is in prison for prophesying the destruction of his people, but he recognizes even in God's discipline, he is engaged. And then here's a fourth thing that Jeremiah declares in his prayer, that God's faithfulness is proven. Often in the Old Testament, when we see 
Um, men pray at the dedication of the temple or some of the other prayers that we've studied in this series, Honest to God. We see them take time to remember the faithfulness of God through the generations. It says in verse 20, his faithfulness is proven. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind. You have made a name for yourself as at this day. In verse 21, he praises God that his faithfulness, he has the ability to deliver his people. You brought your people out of his, uh, uh, people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with the great terror. He praises God for his faithfulness being proven that he blesses his people, verse 22, and he gave them this land in which they swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And he praises the faithfulness of God, the fact that it's proven and that he punishes his people, verse 23. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all of this disaster come upon them. Verse 24, behold, the siege mounds have come against the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Listen, we have a God whose nature is steadfast love, grace, mercy, kindness, and forgiveness. But he's also a God who is holy, and he's just, and he wakes up angry at sin every day. And when we focus only on one, we look at a one-dimensional picture of who God is, and we miss the entire character of God. And you cannot appreciate the loving kindness, mercy, and grace of God until you understand that he's also holy. And he's also a God that will judge. Jeremiah rejoices in all of this. And then at the end of his prayer, he asks this question, yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of Chaldeans. See, he doesn't understand. Why am I purchasing this land? It doesn't make sense to him from a human perspective. But before he asks God the question, he has just declared four things that he knows to be true about God. Listen, even as an earthly father, when my kids couldn't understand the rules that I laid down, I was much happier when they would come to me and say, hey, you know what, Dad? I love you. You're the best dad that ever existed in the whole world. And uh, I know that you and Mom are for our good, and I can't imagine having any better parents in the entire world than you. So why is my curfew 11 o'clock? Like, like, that's kind of, in essence, what he's doing. And as a human dad, like, if I got that kind of response to my 11 o'clock curfew, you'd be like, okay, you can stay out till 11.02. Like, I'd, be, I'd show grace. But he approaches God in such a way that he declares what is true. Now, now, here's the question. Who gives a rip about a real estate transaction 2,700 years ago? Like, why does all of this even matter today? And one of the things that we try to do at Harvest is to apply the text to our lives. I'll often say, find yourself in the story. Who are you in this story? Are you Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the most powerful world man in the world, and everything revolves around you? Is that you? Some of you might think that's you. I doubt that's you. Are you Jeremiah, the obedient, suffering prophet who is hanging around waiting for God to deliver? Is that you? Maybe. But please understand, in this story, you're not Zedekiah, you're not Nebuchadnezzar, you're not Jeremiah, you're the piece of worthless land. 
that Jeremiah is redeeming. Let me connect the dots in the New Testament. Jeremiah is a picture of our redemption. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So we are the people that are being redeemed. When I say that you are worthless, you are worth less than you think you are. What determines your worth is not your opinion of you, it's not others' opinion of you, it's God's opinion of you. And what gives us great worth is the fact that God was willing to redeem us. Does that make sense? So when the fullness of time, he took people that were captives. We were imprisoned under the law. The law is an x-ray or an MRI. The law, the law was never given to us to heal. It was never given to us to save. It was to reveal that we had a problem, and that problem was sin. The biblical illustration of redemption is always ransom. Mark 10 says that the whole purpose that Jesus came says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. When Jesus came, he didn't break us out of jail. He didn't argue our innocence. He didn't try to reduce the sentence, say a death sentence is too severe for their crime. He did none of those things. He acknowledged the fact that we were guilty and he paid a price to redeem, to ransom our freedom. That's the gospel. Now, this is where the analogy to Jeremiah breaks down, where Jeremiah paid 250 bucks to buy this piece of land. Jesus paid far more. It says in Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your self-worth and the way that you view yourself, if it's based off your opinion or the opinions of others or your accomplishments, will be anchorless. It'll go up and down with the tide, rocked by every wave that comes along. When you understand that your value is based off what Christ paid for you, now that's something that holds. And Christ came in and said, I'm not just paying gold and silver to redeem. I love them enough. They have such high value that I'm willing to sacrifice my own life to demonstrate my love for... Listen, when that thing frames your self-worth, it's untouchable because what God has done, he's already accomplished, and what he's promises will reign true, right? Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's the problem. As we sit here, we know that we've been redeemed but probably very few of us would be willing to say that we feel like we are free from sin. Would you agree? So we've been redeemed, we've been ransomed, and yet we still struggle every day with sin. Why is that? And to help me do that, let me close by just doing an illustration. I'm going to need somebody from the front row. 
I need everybody from the front row. So why don't you all come up? Why don't you guys come up? Why don't you two come up? Because you just look too completely comfortable. You guys come up too, okay? And let me try to illustrate what's going on. So just kind of stand in a line in front of the screen. Okay, that works. So, so here's what we're going to do. Marty, I'm going to give you this. And you're going to be the starting line, okay? okay. You're going to stand there, hold that up. You're going to be the finish line, and you kind of go stand over by the organ somewhere, okay? So this is us today. Just like in Jeremiah, he's paid the purchase price for the land, but his ability to redeem the land, to take ownership of the land, is going to be delayed for 70 years. Jesus Christ has fully redeemed us at the cross, but our ability to be completely redeemed is still in the future. And we find ourselves in this period in between where the ransom has been, play, has been paid, but we still don't enjoy full privilege as a ransomed child of God. We're in a process of sanctification. And what we have on this process is we're all at different places. You're like really close. You're like right there. No, stay there. You're not that close. Okay, you're just kind of there. Like, let's not get carried away. But, but maybe she's been walking with Christ for a longer time. She's further along in her journey. But there's people back here who at the start of their walk, and they don't understand what God's doing. And they're struggling in their walk, and they're saying, God, I'm confused. I don't understand. Some of the things that you've called me to is hard. I thought life was going to be easy. I thought you blessed your children, but I'm in difficult seasons. And there's a struggle here. And along the way, and our redemption road is not meant to be walked alone. This is the role of us as a church. You're supposed to call back to those behind you and say, God's promises are faithful. They're true. I've experienced it. Keep going. Don't give up. We're an encouragement to the others that are in this process between the redemption price and before we get home. And what God's promised us is so much better than Nunica. It's so much better. See, in Jeremiah 30 through 33, this book of hope, it's not just talking about restoring them to the land. In Jeremiah 31, God talks about a time when he will take the law that was once written on stone tablets and he will write it on their hearts. And that everyone in Judah will know him as king. That's in the future. That's a promise to the nation of Israel that God is still to redeem them even beyond the returning of the land. And though that promises to Judah, we can look ahead to Revelation 5 where we see a multitude in heaven that is gathered from all people, tribes, tongues, languages. And when asked, who are these people? It says, these are the ones that have been redeemed, ransomed by Jesus Christ. We're in, in between. And we're all struggling to believe that we have been ransomed, set free from sin. In Corinthians, Paul writes, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. In Jeremiah 32, we read about a piece of land being redeemed. It's a picture of the gospel and the fact that Jesus was willing to redeem us and his promises will true, are true and he will complete what he's promised and what he's already began. I'm going to have you guys sit down because the band's going to come out and if I leave you standing there, it's going to get really awkward, okay? Let me do this. 
Just bow your heads for a moment. For those who've walked in here and say, God, I, I, I don't understand. Jeremiah asked that question. I think that's a fair question. But he starts with what he knows to be true. Are you willing to do that and declare what you know to be true about God and let that frame your understanding of where he has you today? And then secondly, in the circumstances that we don't understand and in this journey from being redeemed and Christ paying the price at the cross to where we find ourselves today, could we just acknowledge that we're not home yet? And God's promise that a day is coming when sin will be no more and we will be able to enjoy a holy God face to face, free from the burden of sin. I pray that our longing for that grows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, today. And uh, I would confess that um, uh, this for me has been a season of asking why. And um, not always understanding everything that you're doing, not always able to connect the dots. Father, rather than why, let our prayers start with who. And you are a God who is good. You are a God who is in control. Nothing is impossible for you. And Father, we just acknowledge that from our perspective, we don't know everything. So we trust you. And in the circumstances that we don't understand and the things that you're doing in our lives that seem difficult, my prayer would be that we would have the confidence to trust in your promises, remembering that we have been bought and trusting in who you are in the seasons where we don't understand. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.